I'm Monica Johnson with Marshall Weber, and this is Brooklyn Calling. Hello, welcome to our show where we talk about artists, libraries, and social justice. Uh, Marshall and I are both artists who head up Brooklyn Inc., an arts nonprofit located in Brooklyn, New York, on the unceded land of the Muncie Lenape people. We created Brooklyn Calling to amplify the voices uh, within the artist book field, but also to explore art making as a tool for community engagement and for social change. And so today, our guest is Zoe Belloff. Um, Zoe grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and moved to New York City in 1980 to study at Columbia University. She is a super prolific multimedia artist. She's a filmmaker, a writer, a painter, illustrator, muralist, and so much more that we'll learn as we talk with her, I'm sure. Most recently, Bookland distributed two of Zoe's books. Um, one is called The Parade of the Old New. It's an accordion fold book that reproduced an epic panoramic panoramic painting um, that was done on cardboard. And the second book is Reminiscences of a Refugee Childhood that she created along with her mother, Hala Beloff. And it's the story of her mother's childhood. And then previous to that, in 2019, Bookland published an archival box set of Zoe's works in the print and book formats. Before we welcome Zoe directly into the show, I just wanted to say a few lines about why we're doing the show, just to lay the groundwork for our conversation. Um, one of the reasons is just to give ourselves the opportunity to slow down and have the conversations that aren't necessarily always documented within the work and aren't always the language that we use to describe the work um, or are found within bios, but there's something a little more um, fluid and building that we can find out through conversations when we're in community with each other. I just wanted to also note that um, Zoe's work is... Uh, really resonant in terms of New York City culture and um, bibliophilic culture. Uh, um, her books are really beautiful and engaging, and um, I'm excited to um, just dive into the conversation. Me too. I have so many questions. But for now, let's uh, welcome Zoe. Um, can you say hello and tell me if I got anything uh, wrong or if you wanted to add anything to how we're introducing you? I don't think so. Here I am. Um, I'm up for anything. <laughs> I love it so much. Okay, well, let's, the place we were on it to dive into was, um, can we explore for a little bit, like, the conditions around the parade of the old new as what we know of it now as the... Um, the the mural that was made on cardboard. Um, and if you can talk a little bit about, like, how that developed and in what stages it developed and yeah let us know where it is now and and all of it um well as of today i think the actual mural i just got an email is stuck in paris in transit um between uh augsburg germany and hopefully back in new york soon um but it's had it's had some kind of wild adventures, and 
it really started in, um, I mean, actually started in 2007, January 2017. So um, with the inauguration of President Trump. And at that time, I was, as many of us were, were was totally enraged. And we were, we were painting protest posters and we were going on marches and we were going to the women's march and we were doing all these things. And I was painting my post, um, like placards to take on these marches on corrugated cardboard. And um, I just didn't feel they were big enough to express my rage. You know, they just, even though they were really big for one person to carry, they would still... They did not possibly contain what I really wanted to say. <laughs> so my first impetus was I need a bigger canvas. So I, <laughs> I launched into this thing, which I honestly have never done before. And maybe I hope I will never do again, which is create what's called a history painting. Um, but I decided to do it on cardboard because... To me, cardboard is an incredibly important medium of the 21st century. Um, it's not only like what people take on protests, but it's also the medium of global shipping. Um, it's like the medium of last resort when you're homeless, people build little shelters out of cardboard. Cardboard, as I say, is everywhere. And... Um, so I think it is a, was the right medium. So I decided I would paint this epic history painting on cardboard. So I went and I started with cardboard panels, um, just standard cardboard panel, panels you can buy in an art, art supply shop, which is 40 by 60 inches. So it was 60 inches high. And um, panels kind work for a couple of different reasons. One is my studio is small. So I could realistically only paint two at once. Um, and secondly, I didn't know what was going to happen. And this, I had a bad feeling was just the beginning. So it's called The Parade of the Old New because that's the title of a poem that Bertolt Brecht wrote in 1938, another really, really bad time. Um, in, in, in the poem, he imagines like, this new leader who, who commands a triumphal pr procession to the capital, and he and his henchmen are all shouting, it's new, we are new, everything is new. But if you could really see him as he was, it was the most worst, disgusting, old ideas that had come back repackaged as the new. And I felt that really spoke to um, America first. Um, and that's kind of what we were seeing at this very moment as it was happening. So that's why I decided to call the, this work Parade of the Old New. And um, I think that first January, I painted six panels, and um, which was the procession to the Capitol and what lay in its wake. Uh, the Mexican border wall that meets at a vanishing point with the Japanese internment camp. So I was very interested in these old ideas that come back again. Um, and 
I paused because I, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then over the next, <clears throat> off and on, I mean, it wasn't continuous, over the next four years, I found myself every few months, I had to pick up and start more, more panels. I just felt like I had this obligation to speak about this time and make a record of the time. And it's monsters. If you see the, the painting, it's kind of, it's done in an allegorical style. So um, there are creatures that have bodies of men, but heads of animals, for example, or vice versa. Um, I mean, I was very much thinking of the great mural paintings and frescoes. So it, kind of like my starting point was this allegory that was painted in the town hall of Siena. You can still see it uh, in, in the 1400s, and it was called um, The Allegory of Good and Bad Government. And uh, I felt like this mine was an allegory of bad government, and somebody should keep a record. So I think of it as really a form of record keeping. And um, as I say, I did it off and on for four years. I, I decided I would go on until the election. And when Trump was voted out of office, then it would end. And uh, so it got longer than I expected. Um, the actual mural, it's a series now of 40 cardboard panels. And it's, I think it's 135 feet long. Um, end to end. I actually thought I was ending with this vision of Black Lives Matter painting, um, you know, those great paintings on, on, on roads that said Black Lives Matter. And that was kind of a new road ahead after the George Floyd protests. And I was going to end it there with kind of this hope of a new direction. And then you won't believe it, but January 6th happened. And I was like, shit. You know, I, mm. I, I oh no, <laughs> shit, I have to go and buy more cardboard. So I felt like <laughs> such a horrifying yet like important thing. I couldn't just pretend it didn't happen. So uh, yeah, that becomes like this vermin, like dive bombing the Capitol. Um, and it actually ends with an image of Amanda Gorman reading her poem because I, I just wanted, I still wanted like this, this other direction, this other road ahead. And so I painted this crazy thing, like what was to become of it? Maybe that's a lead into talking about making a book. Mm. Yeah, before we do, I just want to give some measurements to the size of your anger <laughs> as manifested in the, in the mural. Um, so these panels were 40 by 60 inches. So 60 inches being the vertical height. And then once you multiply that by the 40 panels, it ends up being 130 feet. Is that correct? Something like that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and, and then I wanted to ask too, like, so as you were showing up to protests, the marches and, and everything that was happening throughout this year's span of awfulness were you also painting signs 
and then bringing them out in the street and then either leaving them or sharing them or bringing them home? And or were some of them kind of modeling what you would put into the the murals that you were, I think, mostly painting in your studio, correct? Yeah. Oh, yes. As I went out in marches, I always made sure to paint my protest posters um, because I feel like a, it's not just about anger, but it's also about just anger is, is you know, is bitterness. And, and that, that's a terrible emotion. We must have a festive protest, a protest that celebrates who we are and our visual language and makes everybody want to join us because we're just like, we have the best, most beautiful, cool visual <laughs> thing, you know? I love it. I would love yeah. to go and see what everybody was doing. But they also are a grab for the media. So they had a function and they were like split off parts of my big painting. It was like pieces of that. I mean, not literally, but, you know, they were in the same style and they were just manageable to carry. Um, and they're just great because everybody wants a phone picture with them. So they were kind mm -hmm. of a phone camera magnet and people would pass them around and have their picture taken. And they would, they got in some media and newspapers and TV. And so, yeah, it's, it's a celebration also of who we are. And that's why they should not be painted with bitterness. Um, that they're not grotesque in that way or dark and depressing. They're very brightly colored and in a certain way, very festive. So with that style in mind, there were two kind of art historical references that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one was Thomas Hart Benton and the other was Art Spiegelman. <laughs> and uh, I'm... <laughs> So wow, that's um, a, that's quite crossroads. a uh, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, um, it's a little bit of distance, but but it it came to mind when you were talking about you know, a Benton being like a a, a populist populist mm -hmm. right who 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 made like five dollar knockoffs of his murals and paintings, and um, Spiegelman being most well known for his you know use of animal characters with his narratives so i'm just interested if you know are are these influences is this just an the ambiance of the kind of metaphorical world of you know popular painting uh that's interesting i mean obviously i know their work i know i mean spielberg in particular this idea of um, humans as animals but actually at the beginning i was really looking at john hartfield montages where he does a number of things uh with humans with animal faces uh sergey mm -hmm. eisenstein mm -hmm. in strike does that um the muralists that i think i really was more interested in was ben shan uh diego rivera um what victor anatov um which are actually calm, you know, they're not like where I think of Thomas Hart Benton, it's very mannerist. It's super kind of wild in a certain way, whereas the muralists I liked are actually quite matter of fact. But I wanted to bring their work more into the 20th, 21st century. So 
there is an element in mind that the brightly colored, you know, there's speech bubbles. It, yeah, it also draws from like the graphic novel. Absolutely. When I was painting this, I had the mistaken idea that I could show this work in its entirety in America. I mean, because it was for America. Hmm. It's about America. And I thought it would find a place where it could be exhibited, which um, has totally not happened. Um, although it has been... Do you have any speculation of why? I think here there's just this feeling of like, why go to this dark place? Something that might upset somebody. You never know. Mm, yeah. You know, better safe than sorry. Yeah. I feel like there's just like, let's not rock the boat. Yeah. I mean, to me, I would like what's important to me, um, if it was up to me, would be to find some place that would archive it. Because I think it's a record of a time. And as such, it belongs to the future. Mm -hmm. But the book is... I mean, just to say, I, th I think that you're, you're on to something in terms of, you know, not wanting to rock the boat with the imagery. I'm just taking a few glances at the inside of the book, which, you know, of course, is the representation of the actual paintings that would be exhibited. And there's um, clan hoods, there's Confederate flags, there's weapons, there's you know, ice agents um, with German shepherd head. There's a lot, there's a lot of things that, um, yeah, I can, I can see there being a reason to not want to even delve into the complexity of what the public response would be to these very divisive issues that we've already seen, you know, so profoundly in the last handful of years with the American public. Well, I, I think also, the, the stylistic issue, I mean, if you look at the um, muralists you mentioned, and uh, it's not like they were exceedingly well received in the United <laughs> States either. No. Thinking about Rivera's yeah. mural yeah. being destroyed yeah. by Rockefeller. But I think aside from kind of the vocabulary and vernacular of um, nascent decolonization or you know, radical or socialist politics in this country, I find that the art world is really resistant to actually non-fluffy historical critique as, mm -hmm. as a style. I mean, it's interesting that on one hand, you describe the work as, as being still and mm -hmm. calm. And um, in, in, in part, you're, you're talking about kind of the, um, the appearance of the aesthetic of the actual painting, mm -hmm. right, the mm -hmm. composition. But 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 the work is ex you know the 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 small accordion fold book is very challenging. Um, the to con to be confronted with a larger installation work that deals that that brings up all those issues in a very graphic manner um, is very challenging. Now, I mean, people w were very challenged by Mouse when mm -hmm. Spiegelman first published it. Actually, they're still um, challenged by Mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. It's it's now on all those banned <laughs> yes. lists right it's now. <laughs> it's another banned bestseller. Um, but it's also countered by the fact that you know lots of people on the Bookland circuit were very intrigued by the book, and there's some precedence for it um, that I think I see in your Between Worlds project, 
That's true. That was absolutely a parallel project and designed to be a parallel project. I mean, there were really mm. three projects that I did during that four years that Trump was in power. And I I, I did them know, feeling that they spoke to each other and to different facets of the experience that we were going through. So there was this kind of grand history painting that was Parade of the Old New. Well, let me pause real quick and just sort of introduce Between Worlds okay. a little bit. And then, Zoe, you can round it out mm -hmm. with, with other details. But it's a it's a Rizograph printed uh, book. It's, let's see, I'm looking at some statistics. It was published in 2018. It was done during a residency in the Netherlands. Um, and 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 such that the measurements are not in the convenient inches of a U.S. risograph machine, but I think it's sort of like 11 by 17 or something, and you can fill that in. It's full color. Maybe it's like five colors, and it's a documentary story about an asylum seeker in the United States from Cameroon who you befriended through uh, actually some relationship. I would love for you to talk about how how that relationship developed and 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 where it is now yeah um so if 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 parade of the old new is considered like the grand sweep of history i also wanted to show how this what was happening in the united states impacted a real person like the body of an individual like how this immigration policy played out in the real world on a person so from the general to the absolutely specific. Um, and it was part of, I also felt like it wasn't enough just to go on some marches and this and that and, you know, hold up some banners. But you actually had to do something practical. And uh, my first thought for something practical I wanted to do was if I could work with or help refugees um, because, and we can talk about this later, I come from a refugee family. Um, so I really didn't know how to begin. I didn't have connections. Um, somehow I hooked up um, with Hayes, um, which is a Jewish charity that works with asylum seekers and refugees. And they, they had a, a program where you could write to people, refugees and asylum seekers who were incarcerated um, in immigration detention centers. And then somebody from that group said, I want to arrange something where we actually go and see people. So I belonged to the small group um, of Jewish women, and we teamed up with um, First Friends of New Jersey and New York, which has a charity that has very specific links with detention centers in New Jersey, and they facilitate, they help the people who are incarcerated, and they facilitated these visits. So we would go once every two weeks, I would go with my partner, and we would talk with somebody in the immigration detention center who didn't have any visitors. I mean, you have to understand many people there have tons of visitors because they'd been arrested from their homes in Queens, you know, and thrown in an immigration detention center. So their children, their, their wives, whatever, would come and see them. And But there were people, particularly from Africa, who had nobody. So we just went to visit them and you just talk, you know. You sit for an hour and it's like in a prison 
place and you you talk with them. And I learned a lot and I got to know people. And with this one person who fortunately did eventually get asylum, because, you know, you, you talk with people over many months. Um, I wanted to tell his story. And it was very clear to me that the story would have to be in book form because it was not something you could photograph or film. So that um, I wanted to do it. It was clear it had to be a book. And that was a way I could share that story. Uh, it's it's a really beautiful, uh, heartfelt piece. And um, it's interesting. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, your books have a very cinematic feel. And I, I think that's interesting when people are working in multidisciplinary ways to see kind of the techniques of cinema that you apply in some of your books. Like there's a beautiful scene in Between Worlds where it's above and below water. Um, and just, is, is this conscious? Is this intentional? I mean, how, how do you see the relationship between the various media that you work in and um, maybe, uh, you know, from my perspective, I'm interested in how that applies to the book as a, a serial narrative or a serial media. I mean, to me, picture books, or whether a graphic novel or a picture book, is really similar to me to making a film. They're both forms of storytelling, and they both have duration. And when I'm making a film, um, like a narrative film, I storyboard it all, like I draw it first, and then it goes to the next level of actually filming. But, you know, I draw, we take like tons of location photographs. Sometimes I'm like in our last film, um, the, I had a set, so I was like painting the set, you know, which is like making a painting. There's so much that connect the two, and it just, for some things, you want to film them. Other things, particularly these two books I made about refugees, because it was impossible to film, I decided mm. to draw as well. People can tell you things and tell you stories, and then I can find a visual through drawing. I can, I can make them come alive. I mean, with The Asylum Seeker, I... Obviously, he was around, so I could, like, duck you. He was my model, and but he also had little snapshots from his phone of where he grew up and his home, and he would tell me about what the detention center looked like inside because, you know, I could never get beyond the visiting room, and even in the visiting room, you can't even bring a pencil stub in there. But with words... I can help that can help me put things into pictures. That's very interesting because the cover of your book, Reminiscence of a Refugee Childhood, has a photograph set inside a drawing. So it almost exemplifies what you're talking about. It seems like a, a theme through your work. Yeah, that book was really interesting. That's a book about my mother's childhood and my grandparents, um, and who they they had to um they managed to escape uh, Nazi Germany in 1939. Um, they there were many many really hundreds of tiny snapshots that my grandparents had taken and they were really wonderful and beautiful and I wanted to share them and they were very much an impetus part of why I wanted to make that book. Um, 
But snapshots are interesting because people take snapshots for happy reasons, you know, to, for to celebrate things, even if it just be every day of going to the park or having coffee or going to the beach or in those days of my grandparents going to the photographer's studio was a thing that you did. So the dark times, you know, the the Nazi rallies where they had to, you know, run and hide, Kristallnacht, where my mother's school was burned down, there is no record of, you know, there's no pictures of that. Um, and then in the Second World War, my grandparents and my mother were in England. You couldn't take photographs. There was no film. Like, that was all requisitioned by the government. So there's huge gaps, visual gaps. And I was trying to find a way to suggest things and that I had never seen. And that worked in dialogue with photographs. And for me, visually, that was actually quite challenging. How could I make a drawing and a photograph work together and talk to each other on the same page? I mean, that was just a like a art challenge. <laughs> so they belong to the same world. Yeah. Right. Could you talk a little bit about in your practice as an interdisciplinary artist, when things need to be a book. And you laid out that Between Worlds had to be a book because of the restrictions against photography and filming. Um, but has it ever been the case that something needed to be a book, not for those particular reasons? Um, I think there's maybe, I want to say there's like six or seven books, at least that I'm aware of in your repertoire um, like the Coney Island book about the Coney Island Amateur Psychoanalytic Society. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a good example <laughs> of something that that was actually an exhibition and then it became a book. Um, I think oftentimes I'm drawn to doing a book. Well, partly I love books. I like them as objects. I like the fact that they're quite affordable. It's not like fine art that's just for people with lots of money like you know I can give books to people books are not overly expensive books are fun to have um but also books can have a different discourse than say pictures on a wall and a lot of my artwork is also about thinking about ideas and histories and so on that can be fleshed out in written form in more like books you can have writing and pictures and sometimes i feel like there are backstories that i want to tell um that books are really suited to doing so a kind of discursiveness you can have in books that you might not have in an art show of your work well i just wanted to say that i i wonder if you know you were saying that the books um, books can provide a sort of, you know, affordable, I don't know if you said portable, but mm -hmm. it is more private yes. as a medium than maybe viewing something in an exhibition. And I wonder if that's, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but in, in my thinking, the book Parade of the Old New was much more, I don't know, well-received by the people, like, in its format as a book, then maybe it was received as like a potential exhibition. And, and maybe that's part of it. You can close the book, you know, it's not, 
it's not as bold and provocative in a static way in you know in the ways that we've already discussed well but you can close it and put on the that's shelf. It. <laughs> that's really interesting i hadn't really thought about that i always thought it's because you distributed it and so many people could make a decision themselves whether they wanted it um rather than mm-hmm. some gatekeeper and the yes. gatekeeper is second guessing everybody else that's what mm-hmm. they're doing and that's what makes them nervous because it might reflect badly on them um, and they could get into trouble or somebody could be unhappy. And whereas a book, people make their own decisions. They can look at it and decide for themselves about how they feel about it. So I think that's really important, but you are also wonderful to just jump in and uh, take it. And um, that was really great. I, I wanted to uh, bring up a point involved with that in in that whole situation of the gatekeepers and um what can happen in the private sector what can happen in our homes because i i I think that if you have a big giant painting series obviously you are depending on institutional space and institutional space always has gatekeepers and the tendency in those spaces is to be conservative. Um, whereas if, for instance, you know, you have a popular book that can be bought fairly inexpensively and seen in your own home, there are no gatekeepers. It's anyone's choice. Obviously, the work was more popular than the gatekeepers' decisions might evidence. But I also wanted to mention... Um, that's where kind of the, the libraries come in as this interesting space in between, you know, the gatekeepers of the art institutions and the public realm. Because a, a lot of the libraries, for instance, that Bookwin is dealing with are public libraries or state university libraries. And you have a certain kind of gatekeeper there whose interests are more inclusive than exclusive. And so I think it's interesting how many institutional libraries who wouldn't necessarily have the space to exhibit the paintings um, could have the same motivation and intention to acquire the book and amplify it by sharing it with many other people who have access to that library, but also use the accordion fold in a display in you know, the smaller exhibition spaces that most you know, university libraries have, or most public libraries have these days. So it's interesting that there's a few different places where the work can be, you know, distributed to and exhibited and accessed, and we kind of don't need to rely on those big institutional gatekeepers to, you know, give their okay or their thumbs up. No, I agree. And I'm actually very happy that a lot of my books are in libraries. I think that's really wonderful and it's a place that they should be and it's where they can kind of live on. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy about that. I just actually talked to a friend of mine today on, I'm going to see shortly, who has an art um, artist bookstore in London. And she just sold the last two of my books a parade and the refugee book to the British Library. And I'm really happy. I mean, I want my mother's story and my grandparents' story 
to live on in archives, and that's partly why I created it. And uh, it has been doing that to, to a certain extent. And yeah, I think that's really good. Because it is a place where things can be live on and they can be shared. Yes. Um, I had to laugh when you talked about your friend who didn't want to spend the rest of her life selling art to rich people. Because <laughs> I think that is the motivation of so many people who come to work at Bookland who are yeah. artists who are just fed up with the narco-traficante money laundry of the art world and are looking for more public and, or, or state or community or, uh, you know, any kind of way to get art out into the public realm. Um, because I think w one of the things you said was you, you liked the nature of the book is a serial medium that had a more discursive element. Like there's just, there's more space in a book to be intimate, to be vulnerable. Um, and I think that's a, an appealing medium and, and, that medium in of itself is kind of a little bit antithetical to the, you know, the spectacle of Miami Basel or, you know, wh whatever. Um, Zoe, I wanted to talk to you a little bit or ask you about what your days are like. To me, you don't strike me as somebody who doesn't have time to sit and chit chat um, because we have a very enjoyable what I feel is like a leisurely conversation about how things are going. And, but, um, yeah, I just appreciate how much work you create and put out and that I can see. And I just wondered what your life is like. How, how does your life, how do you feel like your life supports your ability to do that? And do you feel that way about yourself? Um, wow. <laughs> I just like do things <laughs> that like, I feel like, that interests me in the world. I feel like very fortunate that I have a job that pays the bills that I think is actually worth doing, um, which is, uh, you know, teaching young people who, uh, you know, from working class backgrounds, immigrants and whatever, which make up City University and that I can get paid for that is really great, even though I sometimes I'm home exhausted. Um, and I've, you know, I certainly paid my dues as an adjunct teacher. So I feel like I'm lucky to be able to do that so I can do other, also other things that are exciting to me. And, but, you know, I just like, I don't, I'm not fancy. I, I, when I had this show in Paris, like they were just shocked to know that I didn't have a, like a real studio, like me and my husband. We live in a two-bedroom apartment, and the bedrooms are our studios, and we sleep in the living room. Um, like we don't have like nice. a real <laughs> studio. Like, no, I can't afford a real studio. You know, I'm not that kind <laughs> of artist. You know, um, I feel lucky that I get to one. Of, I don't make any money with the artwork I do. It's not really about that, but I get to meet all kinds of people. I get to travel. I feel very lucky that I go to Europe kind of often because in a lot of ways, I, even though I've lived here since 1980, I actually feel somewhat more European. I feel like hmm. I, I like spending time in Europe. Um, 
I think if I was a young person now, I probably would go to Europe and I wouldn't go to America. But that was a, you know, um, New York was a different place in 1980. It was considerably cheaper. It's it's interesting. There used to be an old joke that I don't hear anymore, but people would say that um, uh, they'd say, "Oh, N- New York, it's the biggest European city in the United States." Oh, I think it's totally true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> It's the closest you can be to be a European and walk everywhere and um, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff and uh, eat European food because somebody's eating it, you know, that without (laughs) actually being in Europe. It's totally true. I I wanted to ask you a question along the lines of Monica's, but a little bit more topical. Um, And you're speaking about these issues uh, about being, you know, issues of immigration and migration and um, refugees, uh, which a lot of your work addresses those issues. And and you are indeed, you know, personally, you've emigrated to the United States and speaking about how you still have some of that European um, identity, which there would be no reason for that to dissipate in New York City. But, but I'm just wondering if you could speak more to, um, you know, your personal identity as someone with multiple kind of uh, um, cultures and uh, having a family that's been both refugees and immigrants and how this all kind of manifests in your personal life and in your work. Um, that's an interesting question, and it's a question... I've come increasingly to reflect on um, because as a child, I felt I grew up in Scotland, but I felt like totally alienated because I mean, I'm Jewish and I think I was the only Jewish child in my whole school. And you definitely if you don't have not lived in Scotland for generations, you are not Scottish, you will never be Scottish. And you will never really belong. And I think as a child, I was very conscious of that. This was not my world. And I didn't really know what... My parents are not religious. So we're like Jewish, but we're not religious. So it wasn't like that. But I think I knew it was like I was the only Jew because I my mother had a line in the sand. I was not to go to Christmas or Easter. Um, what's it called? Like... Um, service at the school where a minister came to address the children. She felt that was, even though we weren't religious, that was just a bridge too far. So, and people would make remarks, and why wasn't I there? And um, hmm. so I, I just never felt like this was, even when I was in college, I went to art school there, like it was clear I'd never be a Scottish artist. This was not my world. And so I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Um, and New York, like you can be in New York for three weeks and you're a New Yorker, you know. Um, I just felt immediately much more at home. So that was a big, that was really nice. Like it just came in that everybody's from somewhere else here. Um, you know, that makes so much sense. Uh, I think when we first met or like we were kind of getting to know each other and you had um you you let me borrow some um vintage children's books to put in our exhibition little radicals (laughs) uh which was an exhibition at at Brooklyn and I think at some point I I may have introduced you 
you know, not formally like, you know, she was born in Scotland or, or I made some reference to having had a Scottish upbringing and um, there are a lot of people around. So I like I kind of noticed a little not an eye roll, but but kind of like you didn't engage with that identity uh and and we're sort of communicating that in a really like very casual non-aggressive way but like I, I imagine that's probably what you were feeling is like like sure that's where I was born and raised but to carry that with me into social communities is an awkward way to represent myself <laughs> is that something like that's what absolutely was happening? true that's absolutely true people always think oh you grew up there you're Scottish and like when I grew up, I was so not Scottish um, <laughs> that it was like this really like like soft point, I think, that like suddenly you go somewhere else and you are thought to belong to a place that would never have you. It's just weird. That's why, you know, on my website, I call myself a rootless cosmopolitan, you know, which is like what Stalin mm. called the Jews. You know, you couldn't trust them mm. because... They didn't really you belong to the land. And I, that's, uh, I think that's a good thing. I'll just briefly briefly mention what I'm working on now because it kind of grows out of parade. Good, of the I'm old glad view. I was going to ask. So I'm doing a project now I'm um, called The Song of the Essential Worker, which is film interviews and it will be posters and a mural with a really diverse, wonderful array of different kinds of workers. So I'm really, I'm actually really enjoying this. Um, it's become, of course, everything I do, it always becomes bigger than I, <laughs> I imagined it would be <laughs> and harder than I'd imagined. Um, but you'll be finding out more, especially when the postering, poster project gets really underway. As yet, it's a website, theworkerswall.com, and you can find um, these whole array of like little short portrait films that we've been working on this fall and this spring. So check it out. There will be more. And with that, I'm going to say thank you. And thank you guys. And, you know, Monica, thank you for, for taking and distributing my books and finding good homes for them. And it really means the world to me. It is our pleasure, Zoe. Thank you so much for the time you've taken and for sharing everything. And um, yeah, and thank you to everyone listening for joining for this episode of Bookling Calling. Uh, you can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Zoe, Zoe Beloff. And um, there's tons of stuff we laid out. So we'll just be sure to put, uh, I don't know, a bunch of links so you can find the stuff that we're referencing Um and, you know, I don't normally do this, but I am going to plug your website, Zoe, just because I think it's such a it's kind of a wonderland of things. Not only is it just like lots of multimedia, but you can actually watch films within the website. Um, I'm not sure if that's true of everything, but like there's definitely a lot of watchable films that are gorgeous. And the last thing I'll say is that if you're listening and you're a librarian or a curator at an educational institute and you're interested in collecting Zoe's work or other works like it, you can always email us at hello at bookland.org or you can see our entire collection at bookland.org. And with that, I will say thank you and goodbye. Well, it was great. A pleasure. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Thank okay. you, Zoe. Bye, Zoe.
This podcast was made possible in part by funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and in partnership with the City Council and from individual donors to Brooklyn Inc. You can support this podcast by making a donation at brooklyn.org slash donate.